In the eyes of a child, Easter is a joyous holiday filled with candy and chocolate bunnies. But for one small family, that was not the case. They would spend their morning with the people they loved the most, hunting eggs and playing games. But when the night would begin to wrap up and they would begin to get ready to leave, it would change into a nightmare. One that still stains the home to this day. Hey guys, and welcome to my podcast. I'm your host, Lulu, and today is our holiday horror for Easter, and I'm excited to talk about it. Side note, I am very sick. Um, I actually left work early today, and I just haven't been feeling the best, but I was determined to not skip any more episodes, and so that's why we're here today. So if I sound, you know, a little tired, my voice is a little funky, I'm sick and I'm sorry in advance. I don't have any updates for you. Um, I did want to say thank you to the two listeners who went and followed my Instagram. That means the world to me. Um, One of them commented and I commented back. And that's just a shout out for you guys. Thank you for supporting me on my socials. I know that I suck at, you know, posting right now, but that means a lot. So thank you. And I'm glad to see that our little family is growing. We've also hit about 500 subscribers officially. I know that sounds like a little number to some people, but that is a huge number to me. And I just want to say thank you guys, everybody who subscribes and listens. That means the world to me. And if you are not subscribed, you should subscribe so you can be part of that number so that you are always, you know, informed when I upload. But anyways, other than that, let's go ahead and jump right into today's episode. I've had today's episode planned for a while, and I'm super excited to talk to you about the Easter Sunday Massacre. Now, this didn't necessarily happen on Easter. I know that the title kind of sounds like that, and that's kind of what I thought too. And when I was, you know, doing my research and it was telling me dates and stuff, I was like, this did not happen on Easter. But it is considered the Easter Sunday Massacre because the family was celebrating Easter when it all happened. Before we get into the massacre, let's talk about James Rupert. Now, James was born in 1934 to the parents of Leonard and Charity Rupert. He was their second child. Now, James had an older brother, and when he was born, his family was immediately disappointed in him. They were hoping that James was going to be a girl, and they were looking forward to having a girl and having one of each. And I'm not saying that gender disappointment is not a real thing, because it definitely is a real thing. And it's okay to be disappointed in the gender of your baby, but at the same time, what's not okay is the fact that James' mother would constantly tell him and remind him about how he was not the little girl that she wanted and that she wished that he was a girl and that he was basically never born because she wanted a daughter. So right off the bat, this put James in a situation where, you know, he was being held to a standard that he could never reach. I mean, he was a boy. He could never be that little girl that they wanted him to be. So this already put a lot of stress on James and James, you know, it didn't settle well with him because his mom was just disappointed in him 24-7. On top of that, if James's, you know, family life couldn't get any better, his father had a very, very explosive and violent temper. 
This was also paired with the fact that his father showed very little affection in general to both sons while they grew up. So not only is James living in a chaotic household with a father with an explosive and violent temper who doesn't really give the time of day to his sons, he has a mother who just is so disappointed in him that he's not a girl, as if that was something that he could have controlled. So his, you know, household life was not the best. But of course, things just got worse. In 1947, their father would pass away. James would be 12 at the time, and his brother, whose name was Leonardo Jr., was 14. They would lose their dad. And I know that it probably doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world because their father wasn't, you know, the best guy. But because Leonardo Jr. was the older man now of the family, he would end up taking on that fatherly role in the household. And this happens a lot, even nowadays, where the father will die and the older son is just expected to take on the household, you know, to keep food on the table, to parent people, like, and that is such a stressor on a child that no child should have to deal with. But Leonardo Jr. took that role and he began to parent James. This would involve bossing him around and telling him what to do and basically, like I said, being the father. But on top of being the father to James, whether he wanted it or not, James and Leonardo Jr. were still brothers. So Leonardo Jr. would still pick on James as a brother. So now James was getting this conflicting behavior from his brother, where his brother was trying to be his father, but was also still his brother. And nobody was really there to father Leonardo Jr. to tell him to stop picking on his little brother and things like that. So this in turn made James so angry at life, at his brother, at the household that he was living in, and he decided one day that he was done with this. He was done. And he was going to run away. But not run away and stay away. He was going to run away and commit suicide. That way he could be out of this situation. And that was the plan. To run away somewhere and commit suicide at 16 years old to end everything. And he carried it out. Or at least began to. James would bring a sheet with him, and once he was far enough away that he thought nobody would come and find him or get to him soon enough, James would attempt to hang himself. This attempt, I don't know how, but was unsuccessful, and James survived. Defeated, he began walking home because he didn't want to live life alone on the streets. He didn't want to live life in general. This would be the only attempt that James would ever do to run away or commit suicide. James was always a very, very small kid. He always ran on the much smaller side for the boys in his grade. And in turn, you know, people made fun of him and he didn't grow up with a lot of friends. And I know we say that all the time. And uh, it is important to note that you don't have to have a lot of friends to go and do things like this. Like, it doesn't mean if you don't have friends that you're gonna go be a murderer. And I do notice it's something that we talk about all the time. They don't have a lot of friends, but you know, that's really not strange at all. And honestly, the picking on and the bullying isn't strange at all either. Most of us who have gone to public school know that. It just kind of happens to almost everybody. But the big thing is not having a lot of friends 
did not give James any support for his mental health. And James, you know, wasn't in the best situation in general, so his mental health was never really the greatest. James would end up sticking around at home for a little while, but trying to find every single chance he got possible to get out of this chaotic household. He found a college, and he would go off, leave home, and attend this college. But while he attended it, he decided that this was not the route that he wanted to take, and defeated, James would go back home again. This would only last a short while because James would decide that he wanted to go out and he wanted to be a draftsman. He would attend training and leave home again, but in 1975, James was still unemployed and back to living with his mother, who still, as an adult, constantly reminded him that she was so disappointed that he was not the daughter that she wanted. On top of that, James, like I mentioned, was unemployed, he was unable to hold a stable job, and he was constantly drunk, and his mother just reminded him of this every single day. If that wasn't bad enough, his mother would constantly poke and prod at him about how he even owed her money, and that he was living there free and could afford beer, but couldn't afford to pay her back. James just could not get away from his mother, and he could not catch a break, in his opinion. And I'm not saying, you know, that all of this was the universe or anything like that. It kind of was James's fault. He could have went out and got a job. He could have moved out, but he just didn't. Now, let's backtrack a tiny bit to Leonard Jr. Now, Leonard grew up, and he was the star child. He was that father that the mother needed around the house, that father figure. He did everything right. He had a stable, successful job in electrical engineering. He was moved out and he had gotten married and now had eight children with this woman. But this woman was James's ex-girlfriend, which did not make James any happier about the situation because now it just felt like Leonard Jr. had everything. He had the stable job, the home, the children, he was moved out, he was successful, and he had his ex-girlfriend that James still liked. Every single day that James lived there and watched as his older brother was just so successful and got anything he wanted, he became more and more angry at the family and jealousy-ridden this would end up spiraling him into a depressive state, one that he's been in before when he went to try and commit suicide. This depressive state would leave him constantly angry at life in general. He was angry at his family and he snapped one day. James Rupert decided one day that it was time to look at silencers for his weapons because he was done with this. And he began to purchase a lot of ammunition. Now, people didn't think much of this at first because he was always, you know, an avid gun owner. They also started seeing him along the banks of the Great Miami River engaging in target practice. And so they just assumed that this mass amount of ammunition that he was buying was because he was just target practicing, blowing off some steam. Or maybe he was bored. Nobody thought anything of it. And then James would hit another breaking point. One night, he went out just like he always did, every single night, and he would go to the bar and talk to an employee named Wanda Bishop, 
This bar was the 19th hole cocktail lounge. James would talk to her about how he was so frustrated with the constant demands and pressure that his mother was putting on him and all of these standards that he was being held up to that he could never reach. He would bring up how she's now talking about kicking him out and he just doesn't know what to do. He has nowhere to go and he's got no job and now he might be on the streets. His mother, like I had mentioned earlier, had stated that if he could afford to go out every night, to go to the bar, to buy beer, he could afford to pay her rent. And that's why she wanted to kick him out. He wasn't paying her rent. James would talk to Wanda until about 11 p.m. that night, drinking, and then he would get up and leave. Wanda thought that that was the last time she'd see him for the night, because normally he got up and left and left for good. But James would come back later. This was when Wanda was just hopeful that this meant there was good news and that him and his mom had talked and she went up to him and asked him. This is when he responded no and he would sit in the bar and drink and just watch everybody until about 2.30 a.m. that night and he would head home. The family had plans the next day on March 30th, 1975. These were their Easter plans. Now, because James had gotten you know, back home super late that morning, he slept through most of these Easter plans. Leonardo Jr.'s family would arrive early the morning to his mother's home with their eight children, and they would begin their Easter activities. They would spend the evening together without James because he was upstairs, sleeping the drunk off. They would set up for an Easter egg hunt. They would pick all the eggs out. They would eat breakfast, lunch. You know, they just were hanging out all without James. That was until around 4 p.m. that night. This was when everybody was starting to wrap up. They were going to get ready to head out. And James would officially wake up for the day. He would sit in his room and just really think and decide that today was the day. James would begin to load his guns. These included a 357 Magnum, two 22 caliber handguns, and a rifle. Then he would walk downstairs to the Easter party. This is when he would see his mother preparing food in the kitchen with his brother and his brother's wife. Most of the children in the home were playing in the living room when James would walk into the kitchen. He was done with it. And James would lift one of his guns up and fatally shoot and kill his brother, Leonard Jr., in the head. Leonard was 42 years old at the time. He then swung the gun over and pointed it at Leonard's wife, his ex-girlfriend, and he would fatally shoot her. She was only 38 years old at the time. Once they were both dead, he turned the gun on his mother, who was 65 at the time, and he shot her once in the chest. During this, she would jump up at James to try to prevent him from shooting anybody else and get the gun away from him, but she was not quick enough, and she would be fatally shot. The massacre didn't end there, because James would walk out of the kitchen, and he would proceed to shoot all of his brother's children. James would shoot and kill David, who was 11 years old at the time, Teresa, who was 9 years old at the time, and Carl, who was 13. The rest of the kids would be huddled together, terrified. 
he would walk up to them and raise his gun and shoot Anna, who was 12 years old at the time, Leonardo III, who was 17 at the time, Michael, who was 16 at the time, Thomas, who was 15, and little John, who was only four years old. Everybody was dead. His mother, his brother, his ex-girlfriend, and all of their children. But that wasn't good enough for James, because once everybody was dead, he would walk back through and shoot every single one of them again to make sure they were officially dead and that they would not get away. The attack on this family lasted less than five minutes, and nobody made it out alive. James would spend three more hours in that house with the bodies of his family members there before he would decide he was going to call the police on himself. He said that there was a shooting and that he would wait inside the front door till authorities arrived. Now, I say on himself, but he didn't tell them that he shot the family. He just informed them that there was a shooting. And when the authorities arrived, they began looking through the scene. There was almost no sign of a struggle. The only sign of any struggle was an overturned garbage can. In total, James had fired 35 rounds of ammunition into his family that day, and they managed to recover every single weapon that he used. He wasn't hiding things very well. Maybe he didn't want to hide things. Of course, press flocked around this. They wanted to know what happened that night and how this family all died. When the authorities began talking to the press, they stated that there was so much blood in this massacre that it was dripping through the floorboards and into the basement of the home. I guess it's even said that to this day there is still staining from the blood in the home. I'm not sure how much I believe that though. I follow a lot of people that do a lot of crime scene cleanup and I see a lot of them pulling up wood or carpet or things like that when they are just too tarnished with biohazard. So I don't really feel like that's entirely true, unless maybe it just wasn't a common practice back then, but I'm not sure. I just wanted to put that in there since it was said that's what the authorities were telling the press. Of course, they immediately arrested James and charged him that day with 11 counts of murder. This would be James' first encounter with the law, but he refused to talk. The entire time he was in custody, he was very uncooperative, and he made it clear to the authorities that the plan was to plead insanity to the courts, and that he was crazy but not responsible. The town was taken aback when they heard about it, and heard who had done it. None of them thought this man, who has always been small, he was only 135 pounds and stood at 5'5", five, five. that's only 3 inches taller than me. He was the quietest man that they knew. They didn't feel like he was capable of killing anybody, much less his family. James was probably hoping that that was going to give him a one-up in pleading insanity. And the trial would begin. Now, this is a roller coaster for James. In the first trial, yes, I said first, there were three judges. They would go on to find James guilty even though he had pleaded insanity. 
It was clear to the courts that James was driven by anger and jealousy and was just done with his family, not that he was crazy. They sentenced James to a single life sentence in prison for all of the murders. Then they decided to retry James and move the entire trial because they did not feel like it was possible for him to receive a fair trial since so many people knew about this and knew about James and who he was. So the second trial began in June of 1975. The prosecutors would bring forth a witness that had seen James target practicing the month before this massacre. They would then ask James about the silencers that he had purchased and the gun collection that he had used on this family. He would admit that his mother's expectations were a problem and he needed to solve that problem. And it does look like this is what drove the murders, this singular problem. Sorry, there's a train that's taking forever to pass in the background. In the second trial, they would sentence James to 11 consecutive life sentences, a life sentence for every single life that he took that day. In the long run, this trial was actually worse for James than his first trial. His lawyer would later try to appeal this, and they granted James another trial in 1982. James once again would plead insanity, and his lawyer would hire expert psychiatrists and psychologists from all over to try to prove his point that James was insane and that he was not responsible for the murders. Then on July 23rd of 1982, with another set of judges, they would find James guilty on two counts of first-degree murder, just the murder of his mother and his brother. He was found not guilty on the other nine people that he killed by reason of insanity. They changed his sentence to one life sentence for each count, so two life sentences in total in prison. The death sentence had been abolished in the United States from 1972 to 1976. And because this happened in 1975, James could not be tried for the death penalty and would just remain for the rest of his life in prison. A year after this incident, the inside of the home was reopened to the public. People would come around from far to check out this house, to talk about the homicides that happened there and what James had done. The city would decide to auction off all of the household items that were still in there. There was nobody to take them at this point and they just wanted to move on. Then, after everything was gone and auctioned off, they followed this house with another deep cleaning. During this secondary deep cleaning, they would pull up old carpet and lay down new carpet, but it sounds like they would leave the hardwood that was bloodstained. Then, they put this home up for rent. The family that would move in next was unaware of the massacres. Because, when selling or renting a home, you do not need to disclose to people if anything happened there. You don't need to tell them that if somebody died there. You don't need to tell them if somebody was murdered there. You don't need to tell them any of that. Which, I can kind of understand, but also, like, I feel like you should have to disclose that. The people who would move in first would quickly move right back out, claiming that that house was massively haunted. They would hear voices talking to them. Weird things would happen. Things would move. And another family would move in. 
and then move out just as fast, saying the same things. There was voices. Things moved around, and this would just keep going. People would move in and move out, talking about how haunted that home was, and that's when they would find out of the incidences that happened there years prior. You can still rent this home when it goes up. It's still available in the market. As of 2021, James is still serving his sentence in the Franklin Medical Center located in Columbus, Ohio. He was granted a parole hearing in 1995 at 61 years old, but was denied. In April of 2015, he had another parole hearing, but was denied again. His next parole hearing is scheduled in February of 2025. James will be about 90 years old at that point. James seemed like he let his anger and jealousy get the best of him. He was under so much pressure, I think he felt like he was just boxed in. Murdering your entire family is not the way to go to get out of this kind of situation. And the fact that he shot and killed the children, who were not responsible for anything that James was angry about, I do not agree with. He should have not been able to plea and be given the insanity deal with the murders of the children. They were innocent. These children deserve to see justice being served to James. I'm glad that he's been denied parole twice. He does not deserve to be out. James wanted to get out of this situation and he did just that. He got out and is now spending the rest of his life in prison. There may be false or misleading information throughout this podcast. All facts have been researched to the best of my abilities, but accidents do happen. If this is a story you are interested in knowing more about, I highly recommend doing your own research. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.